This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Today, the state begins easing stay-at-home restrictions, although some counties will keep their orders in place. Populous counties like Denver, Boulder, Broomfield, Jefferson, Adams, and Arapahoe. As we'll hear, there are businesses and workers eager to reopen, but for some, the decision to return to work is agonizing. Take Jennifer, for instance. She lives in Douglas County, which is going with the state's guidelines. Jennifer works in education. She didn't want to use her last name. And she's vulnerable to COVID-19. She's 58, has asthma and type 1 diabetes. I emailed my primary physician and she basically said, you know, I I cannot tell you what to do because of your medical, you know, pre-existing conditions. You are at high risk. You know, follow the procedures, mask gloves, wash your hands frequently, you know, six feet away, which is impossible because I'm in childcare. So I've got, you know, four and five-year-olds. Basically, she said it's a personal decision. You know, you have to weigh your risk and make your decision. The child care center where Jennifer works saw a dramatic drop in attendance when the stay-at-home order went into effect. It remained open for the children of essential workers, and that gave Jennifer and her employer enough wiggle room to keep her safe at home. But as the state begins to reopen, more kids will be coming back, and the center needs Jennifer working again. I think it's important for me to state that I think my employers, if I were in their shoes, I think they've done everything they can from a financial basis. I mean, they've already lost two-thirds of their income because of the stay-at-home order. They have tried their very best to keep me on, keep me covered, medical, and pay me. I mean, it's been well over a month. I don't want to make them in the wrong because they're a victim as much as anybody else. I know that they're running at a huge loss trying to keep as many people on the books as possible. But they gave Jennifer an ultimatum. Come in today or resign. A sort of health care catch-22. She's worried about leaving her home, contracting the coronavirus, but she needs the work and especially the health insurance that comes along with. Financially, I I'm, I'm, have enough savings to last about six months. But because I, um, it's about 500 to $800 a month just for pharmaceuticals without uh, medical insurance. That is my biggest dilemma. So is she going to work today? I don't think I have a choice. I mean, if I lose my medical benefits, I will go bankrupt in about two months. So it's really a choice now of, sorry, um, do I risk, you know, the, it's a statistical game, I guess you could say. Do I risk the chance of getting the coronavirus and probably becoming quite ill, if not die, or declaring bankruptcy and losing all my assets and and not being able to uh, receive, you know, my medication and, and see a physician? So I don't, at some point, I don't really think I have a chance. I guess I have to take the risk. That is one woman's experience as Colorado unfurls its safer-at-home policy. A couple of key points here. Starting today, in counties choosing to follow the state's order, retail stores can start delivering purchases curbside, and real estate agents can do one-on-one showings. Elective medical and dental procedures can restart. By Friday, retailers can have customers in their stores with strict social distancing, and personal services like hairstyling can open. Then next Monday, May 4th, offices can bring back up to half their workers. 
Governor Polis warned that the new program can't be, as he called it, a free-for-all. If people aren't careful, the number of COVID-19 cases could jump and stay-at-home rules could be reinstated. Here's how the governor described the new safer-at-home mindset. It's a time for caution. It's a time for informed decisions. Uh, It's a time for calculated risks. It's a time to be careful. It's a time to be safer at home when you can, but be able to live in a sustainable and fulfilling way, Uh, psychologically, emotionally, economically, putting bread on your table uh, as we prepare for the long haul. But not everyone is willing to take those calculated risks. Here's Denver's Mayor Michael Hancock explaining that his city will stay pretty much on lockdown. I decided to extend Denver's stay-at-home order until May 8th. And while we are flattening the epi curve, Denver's specific metrics of new infections, hospitalization rates, and mortality suggest we are not completely out of the woods. So we need a little more time to scale up our testing and tracing capacity and to provide our residents and businesses the kind of specific guidance they're asking for. As we said, five metro counties, Adams, Arapahoe, Boulder, Broomfield, and Jefferson are following Hancock's lead, although several will allow retailers to start that curbside delivery. And there's something of a patchwork elsewhere in the state. Eagle County in the mountains got state permission to relax their rules somewhat more than the state order. Mesa County on the western slope has asked for a variance as well. Meanwhile, Weld County commissioners have said local businesses can open whenever they feel comfortable. In short, as the governor's new safer-at-home plan takes effect today, in some parts of the state, the exception is the rule. That's something the state health department acknowledged in a tweet Sunday when it told people to check with local officials for the latest plan where they live. When we come back, four business owners from different parts of the state on how they're reopening or not. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. As Colorado, or parts of it, move from stay-at-home to safer-at-home, some businesses can reopen, others not so fast. As we said before the break, Adams, Arapahoe, Boulder, Broomfield, Denver, and Jefferson counties all extended their stay-at-home orders through May 8th. Meanwhile, Eagle County got an exemption, Weld County encouraging businesses to make decisions for themselves. It can be confusing, and so we're going to hopscotch the state now and hear from a number of small business owners who are navigating these murky waters. This first voice may be familiar. Robin Laurie owns a Denver boutique called Tallulah Jones. We've been checking in with her from time to time. And Robin, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Ryan. We spoke, gosh, it was only a week ago, about how yep. you're managing in the shutdown. So it, it seemed like Denver might be open for business later this week. But, of course, Mayor Hancock extended the stay-at-home order. How are you feeling about the delay as a business owner? Uh, I feel it's a smart move. Um, I am, you know, anxious about uh, protecting my staff as well as my very dear customers. Um Uh, You know, as much of a financial hardship this is, um, I think the emotional hardship of, you know, uh, having somebody access, you know, get in, 
the virus, you know, through my shop would would be very hard to bear. Are you a little jealous of the counties where they're going to be allowing curbside pickup for some retailers? Do you wish you uh, could do that? Curbside would be nice. Yes, we um, we would love to be continuing to do that. Um, and uh, we're we are still doing newsletters um, offering like a, a snapshot of the products that we carry that we send out to our customers. Um, you can also access that on our um, website to see what's new and what to look forward to once we can start um, providing that service to our customers. A testament to how you have tried to adapt to this new environment. Okay, I'd like to bring in Heather Bean. She's owner of Syntax Spirits. It's a distillery in Greeley. And uh, Heather, Weld County Commissioners announced last week that you are free to open using guidance that they call safer at work. Uh, My understanding is that they're going to be discussing that even this morning. But what have you done with their council thus far, Heather? Um, Hi, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, honestly, I find, well, I'm a, I'm a former engineer and I, I believe in science quite a lot, really. And I find the new regulations, well, just as an owner of a very public business, um, a bar, tasting room, um, it's hard to completely feel like I could really be comfortable opening when it could put my employees and my customers at risk because a bar is sort of the exact opposite of social distancing. <laughs> so but I it, do find it concerning that bars and restaurants can open at this point. Chris, uh, I, I think it's commissioners saying businesses should make that decision for themselves. It sounds like you've made that decision for Syntax Spirits, yeah. which is to stay closed. Yeah, for us, we're we're kind of dipping our toe in the water a little bit. We're trying to come up with some safer things for the new normal. We're going to start experimenting with some drive-in comedy shows in our parking lot on Saturday nights. So things like that where we can try to do things that we can do very safely, keep people in their cars and, you know, still provide people with a little bit of fun. Oh, I you see. might have at a bar, but not the same way. So <laughs> instead of like a drive-in movie, it's a drive-in comedy show live. Right, right. Uh-huh. One of our uh, one of our bartenders is a comedy promoter, and uh, he had this idea that you could do it on over FM radio, and so people can watch the comic and then hear it in their cars and not mingle. <laughs> now, would it be legal for you to deliver them spirits while they're in their cars? Um, we're not going to start out doing it that way. Okay. Uh, that's actually one of the hardest things right now in the alcohol industry. We're quite highly regulated, and just what the rules are and how they're interpreted and some of this changes on like an hourly basis. So it's really hard to keep up with. We're going to start with it not being um, delivery to cars, but perhaps we'll figure out that we can work into that. So. Let me just pick up on what you said there, Heather Bean of Syntax Spirits in Greeley. Sometimes things can change on an hourly basis. Have, have you ever been in as kinetic an environment uh, as this as a business owner before? Um, not in this regard. Uh, not like this, in fact. You know, since we've been closed after the shutdown order, you, you'd have thought that I would have a lot of time. But it turns out that just processing all the new laws and regulations and how they apply to us, and you know, it, it's been like more than a full-time job. 
Let's bring in Chris Willett. His business is Alpine Maids in Denver. It's a cleaning service, and so it's considered an essential business. And yet, Chris, you closed down anyway, correct? Thanks, Ryan. Yes, we did. Um, I don't think we were prepared uh, to operate safely at the time. Meaning that employees didn't have the skills, the knowledge to protect themselves or the clients? Right. We we didn't have um, proper procedures for PPE, nor did we have enough just because of supply chain issues. Um, and then con- contamination control measures and um, just more in-depth knowledge of the cleaning of an infectious disease. I just wanted to make sure that we were completely uh, ready to tackle this situation and that everybody here felt safe and prepared before we resume. And are you resuming today then with more education? Uh, Friday is the day. That's Friday's the day that we should, uh, everybody should have safety training. And ideally, our employees won't have contact with anybody. And, you know, on a bad day, we might have contact with one, two people max. That is to say, if an Alpine maid is going to go in a home in Metro Denver, it is not likely that the homeowner will be there? Correct. And if they are there, um, we're asking that they isolate themselves into one room. And once we're done uh, cleaning the rest of the house, we'll switch with them, clean that last room and get out. Is there a lot of pent-up demand? Are people eager to have cleaning services? They are. We've we've seen a pretty big surge in demand this week, um, and a lot of it's for our disinfection service. Is part of the reason you decided to stay closed, even though cleaning services are considered essential, uh, that you thought your employees would be better off on unemployment? That was a big part of it as well. Um, we received a PPP loan, and you know, before we had access to that money, um, our, our employees were going to be paid better to, to stay home and stay safe. Okay, that's the Paycheck Protection Program, which uh, right. was, was re-upped. Okay, um, I want to bring in Nicole Magistro. She owns the Bookworm in Edwards, Colorado. Normally, she's on the show to talk about book selections. In this case, she's going to talk to us about the book business in the face of COVID-19. Of course, Edwards is in Eagle County, which shut down even before the statewide mandate and which will be opening with looser restrictions because it got a variance from the state. Hi, Nicole. Hi, Ryan. Thanks for having me. What have you been doing to keep afloat? Oh, goodness. We have been pivoting our model from a real kind of high-touch community gathering place into an online model um, in order to utilize our website that we've always had and really try to push as many sales through that and ship books to people around the country. Uh, We also launched a robust um, fundraising campaign, and we applied for every grant and loan available to us in hopes that some things would come through, which, you know, after more than a month now, uh, they have started to uh, happen. So we are doing okay. It's a little more positive uh, now than it was a month ago, that's for sure. I think what I hear you saying is very similar to what Heather Bean said from Syntax Spirits, which is the doors may be closed, but it's not like the work stopped, you know? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I feel like I'm working uh, three times more than I normally do because, of course, I also have a son 
who is uh, at home from school. And so my husband and I, who both own businesses, are also in charge of her his education. And that's a full-time job. Yeah. So it's, it's just been a lot. So what's your understanding of Eagle County's exemption? Could you be open today? And are you? What's happening? Uh, um, we have our curbside pickup for grocery soup and books um, every other day. Okay. And that will continue at least through this week uh, and next week as we prepare our physical space, um, really transforming it from a retail space into um, more workspaces for our staff so that we're not using shared uh, cash wraps, shared supplies, and things like that. Up until now, we've had very, very few staff in the store. And now we need to transform it into a safe workspace with multiple workstations. So we're kind of taking over our retail space at the moment. So to describe the bookworm, if you haven't been there, it's part bookstore, it's part gift shop, it's part coffee shop. And I I really am fascinated by what may happen to the design of places post-COVID-19 we're having to think about that in terms of workplaces, but I, are you rearranging shelves and books and setting capacity limits and that kind of thing? Yes. Literally this morning I came in and started moving furniture around um, to see what we can do and see how we can space things out so that instead of coming to the business with the approach of sales per square foot and sort of how much you know can people touch and feel, um, to instead, how can we keep people separated and still have that same feeling when they walk in the store? Um, it's a huge challenge. Right now, our store is much more of a warehouse than a retail store, but we're hoping to get that back to normal by the end of the month, maybe by, by the end of May, I should say. Robin Laurie from the Denver Boutique Tallulah Jones, you mentioned just a bit earlier your concerns that a customer or an employee Uh, catches the coronavirus in your store. Chris, that would be very hard to kind of pin down, right? But I understand that worry. And I wonder if you've thought at all, as you look towards reopening, about liability. Um, Do you you know if a business owner takes on any liability in, in a scenario like this? Is it a question you've asked around about? Uh, I haven't, um, asked around about that. We have, um, like the bookworm, we are looking at our, you know, how we stock our shelves, how we, um, you know, show our product. We are reducing certain displays so that there is more room to move around. Um, We are going to be, you know, putting tape markers down for kind of six feet clearance. Um, So we're kind of doing some rearranging as well. Um, And we are going to ask the customers wear masks. Um, We have a little sign that we uh, found, and and we're going to um, ask that they wear masks. We will be wearing masks as well. Would you turn away a customer who didn't have a mask? I might, yes. Uh, That's Hmm. a hard question that I'm still wrestling with. Yeah, and Um, I suppose there are probably legal implications for that, too. Nicole, have you given thought to that up in Edwards at the Bookworm? Yes, I, you know, we have been wearing masks uh, for weeks in the store when we have been here, um, facilitating pickups and drop-offs and that kind of thing. 
And uh, yes, I think when we are ready to welcome customers in the store, maybe in you know several more weeks' time, a month's time, I think we will still have those kinds of restrictions in place. And just um, I think people will understand and that. I don't think we are at that point where we're going to have a lot of protest. Everyone wants to stay safe. Heather Bean of Syntax Spirits, just reflect on something we heard from Chris Willett of Alpine Maids just a little earlier. Are you having trouble? This is just so brass tacks. Are you having trouble getting hand sanitizer and disinfecting wipes and and the kinds of things that a business would need to safely bring back employees and customers? Well, luckily, I have a distillery, so oh, that's I did have a little bit of alcohol um, left over. We just moved into this crazy building, and our stills actually aren't running, but we were able to uh, bring some with us from our old location. So actually, bizarrely, we're like probably the only business that, you know, actually hasn't had that problem. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> so. Chris Willett of Alpine Maids, uh, talk, talk to me just a bit about what the business climate is. Uh, how vulnerable, how um, kinetic do you think it is going to be moving forward? It certainly has been in the past. Are you kind of braced for more change? I am. Um, I've, I've never been in a situation like this as a business owner. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty out there. There's a lot of uncertainty about um, what our future looks like over the next six months, over the next year, however long we're going to have to take new measures. And like you were saying earlier, they change by the day. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty about cash flow, mm-hmm. um, safety, and um you know, for us, the the hardest thing has been budgeting and how we're going to use these loans and, and grants and the rules around them and the risks that we're taking by using this money. And it, for me, I'm not sure if I'm going to end up owing back hundreds of thousands of dollars or or what could happen in the next couple of months. So yeah, the, the Paycheck Protection Program comes with some uh, some conditions, some caveats about how that money is used and when. It and does. We, we haven't even gotten into the question of how you maintain inventory for a store uh, that is operating in such a strange environment. That's a whole different conversation. I want to thank you all for being with us. Robin Laurie of the Denver Boutique, Tulula Jones, Heather Bean of Syntax Spirits in Greeley, Chris Willett of Alpine Maids in Denver, and Nicole Magistro of the Bookworm in Edwards. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. And let's hear two health care voices now as stay-at-home orders begin to ease. Jill Hunsaker-Ryan leads the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment. She hails from Eagle County. The virus hit hard there and early. But just last week, that county, where the service industry is king, was allowed to ease restrictions on businesses and public life. Jill, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Also with us, Chair of Emergency Medicine at CU, Dr. Richard Zane in Aurora, which of course is home to the Anschutz Medical Campus and in neighboring Denver. Stay at home was extended through May 8th. Dr. Zane, welcome back to the program. Thank you for having me. And Jill, I wonder if we might break a little news this morning. I know that Mesa County on the Western Slope has asked for an exemption from the state's course uh, will will that be granted? Has that been granted today? 
we, we are working with Mesa County on that um, and uh, believe that they will be getting approval today or tomorrow. Um, Mesa County has had a low prevalence of COVID-19 all along, and they've got some of the systems in place that we look for um, when granting a variance to, uh, to counties. Give me an example of one of those systems. What is a precaution you have to see for the state to say, yes, County X, County Y, you may go your own way? Yes. So first of all, do they have the ability to test residents in order to detect the virus so that we're able to get um, a fairly accurate picture of how high or low the prevalence of the disease is? Um, We also ask that the local hospitals send us a letter um, telling us that they do have hospital capacity to care for people um, in the region with or without COVID-19. And we ask the local public health department to um, show us that they've got an early warning system in place and some triggers so that they can tell if the disease is increasing in their community and if their healthcare systems are starting to be utilized more um, so that they can then tighten up restrictions. Okay, so that's some of the communication between the state and the counties. Dr. Zane, from a medical perspective, how do you feel about uh, many metro counties extending their stay-at-home orders? Well, I think that there is no one single solution that's gonna be appropriate for every single county. Um, The more we learn about this virus, the more we know what we don't know, if that makes sense. Um, We do know that physical distancing is one of the tools and maybe the only tool for now in our toolbox that prevents the spread. So it seems logical that we do this in a very careful, stepwise fashion and that we make judgments based on the characteristics of each county and each town uh, and make those decisions carefully. Interesting, because the the criticism, of course, of this is that you have the federal government saying, hey, states, figure this out for yourselves. Then you have states saying, hey, counties, you're welcome to try to figure this out for yourselves. Medically speaking, you're not concerned about a kind of patchwork approach to this? Um, I think describing it as a patchwork would be pejorative. Um, I hope to be able to describe it as each individual county being as thoughtful as they can, looking at the characteristics of their county and what makes them different or not, and then looking for guidance from state officials uh, to make the best decisions they can for the citizens of of their county. Um, The more we know, the less there is one uh, tool that we can do do and one thing we should deploy, and we have to be just uh, thoughtful about how we move forward. All right. I, I don't use the term patchwork to pass any sort of judgment. A, a quilter might think that's a very positive term, for instance. Um, set, set this scene for me at the University of Colorado Hospital today when it comes to COVID-19 patients. Um, across UC Health, um, we still have approximately 240 patients um, admitted to our hospitals with COVID-19. A little over half of them are in the ICUs and the patients who are in the ICUs, most of them with COVID-19 are on ventilators. Okay. And then we have a number of patients who are uh, on ECMO. So we have seen the numbers plateau. Uh, we have not seen them go down, uh, but also not go up. I'm so sorry, I don't know what ECMO is. ECMO is an artificial lung machine, okay. um, extracorporeal membrane um, oxygenation. 
You know, the more I read about COVID-19, the more it seems like it's a disease that has some just bizarre behaviors and, and different manifestations in different people. And we're, we're starting to learn that it may have some long-term health effects, not just on the lungs, but perhaps on the, the kidneys and so on and so forth. What would you say in the last few weeks that you've learned about COVID-19? Well, we've learned that it's not just a respiratory virus, that it causes remarkable and precipitous immunologic response in patients, sometimes uh, for unclear reasons. And those precipitous immunologic responses are what are often correlative to these permanent sequelae of kidney failure or permanent heart failure um, and sometimes uh, stroke. So the, we're learning a lot more about this disease um, we also think it, it causes an abnormality in hemoglobin, almost a hemoglobinopathy, and it causes different clotting or abnormal clotting. So in some people at one end of the spectrum, they don't even know that they're infected. Yeah. And then on the other end of the spectrum, they become profoundly, profoundly ill, um, and it's likely due to this incredible immunologic response. Yeah, I was reading, I think in the Washington Post, just about young people having strokes. That's related to the clotting? Uh, we think that's uh -huh. what that it's related to the to the abnormal clotting. Okay, back to the idea of the stay-at-home order becoming safer at home. Uh, when asked why he, Mayor Hancock in Denver, was extending the city's order, um, he said that it had partly to do with testing. He wants to get to a thousand tests per day, and to strong contract tracing contact tracing, rather, before easing restrictions in Denver on public life. How do we build into our way of living, our systems, uh, regular testing and regular access and to coordinated testing so that as we enter into different seasons, we are set up to protect residents and we can avoid future peaks or at least not large of a peak going forward. Yes, let's increase uh, let's have an understanding of what the gross capacity of testing is in our city. Let's make sure that we coordinate accessibility of that testing for whoever needs it, regardless of their ability to pay, regardless of what station they come from in life. Uh, let's make sure that people have access to that testing all over the city of Denver. And then thirdly, um, let's make sure we have a system to do contact tracing, which is as critically important as the testing. Who do people have contact with? Let's make sure we're able to track them down. Let's make sure they're informed. Let's make sure we begin to box their virus in, that it becomes our punk, and we're not its punk anymore. Jill Hunsaker Ryan from the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment. Compared to other states, Colorado's near the bottom when it comes to testing the general public. The director of Harvard Global Health told our colleagues at KUNC, quote, Colorado and others need to get their act together and move forward on this because they're not going to be able to keep their population safe, especially as they begin to think about opening up without much more aggressive testing, end quote. What is your response to testing in general and whether it's matched with the subtle reopening that we're seeing? Well, um, I will say, given the quote that you just read, like, wow, it's it's not for a lack of trying in Colorado. Um, the governor, the first thing he did was set up an innovative response team to go out in the private sector and try and get testing supplies for us. Um, and we've been trying to work with our federal partners um, to get testing supplies. And the truth is the supply chains are just severely interrupted. So there are a lack of swabs 
um, viral media to transport the specimens, um, reagents uh, that our labs need to do the testing. Um, so, I mean, we've been working with local county um, health departments, and we have a plan for mass testing, but we're really lacking the supplies. And um, yes, the truth is that testing is how you detect that there um, is a virus in someone. And then, you know, normally public health uses that opportunity to um, isolate them, uh, support them to make sure they've had a successful isolation, um, contact trace uh, people that are close to them, put those people in quarantine for 14 days. And that's normally how we suppress a disease. So uh, the fact that people um, don't know whether they've had this uh, because we don't have enough testing. And, you know, the other curious thing about this novel virus is that there's asymptomatic transmission. Yeah. So uh, as the doctor said, you know, people can be infected, can be contagious, and they have no idea that they have COVID-19 and they're transmitting it. So, of course, that also hampers our, our disease containment measures. Well, that doesn't inspire confidence if the state is reopening, does it? I mean, in other words, how are you going to detect hotspots at the same time that you're saying the state, despite its best efforts, does not have the testing equipment to detect them? Right. I mean, in an ideal situation, everybody who was showing symptoms and even people who are um, asymptomatic that uh, potentially have been exposed would be tested. So given the environment in which we find ourselves in, um, you know, the best next thing is to continue to social distance. And that's why this next stage from stay at home is called safer at home. We're still encouraging people to stay home whenever they can. We're encouraging employers um, to promote telework. So people that can work from home should work from home. Um, those ages 65 or over have pre-existing conditions. We hope that their employers were asking their employers to make accommodations so that they do not have to come in to work. Um, basically, this is a really tricky balance between trying to continue to keep the disease transmission at a level uh, at which it won't overwhelm our hospital systems and allow people to still try and um, earn a living, frankly. So it's one reason that we are promoting, you know, counties uh, to either be more stricter than the state's safer at home order if they still have a high disease prevalence in their communities. And we absolutely support that. Um, conversely, you know, Colorado is such a diverse state where you've got urban cities to frontier counties. So um, if there are areas in the state where the prevalence is low, where they do have a way to detect the virus, um, they have er early warning systems in place to know if the disease is picking up so they can tighten restrictions, uh, then they can ask for a variance and we can work together on that. Can you tell me what an early warning system is? In other words, how, how else can you find out that there's a hotspot that has reemerged besides hospitals getting overwhelmed? Right. So um, through the testing and even though, you know, not everybody's being tested, there are there are metrics like there are um, doubling times of uh case increases, um, there's percent positivity in tests. So in the state of all the people we've tested, about 20% of our tests have consistently come back positive. In Mesa County, it's only 4%. 
um, local public health departments are very much in touch with their local providers. And okay. the local so providers... You, so you, I think what know, I hear you saying is you've th- yes. there's a baseline established, and what you do is you compare things to the baseline? That is an elegant way of saying it, yes. And then there are <laughs> triggers in place. Right, right. Okay. That, that indicate it's time to tighten back up. That's helpful to know. I appreciate that explanation, Jill. Okay, Dr. Zane, what are your fears about a second wave. Um, Those who are reading up on history have seen by now probably a million times that it was the second wallop of the 1918 flu pandemic that was the deadliest. Is that applicable here today? And what are what's your level of concern? So we're most assuredly watching. And as as was just pointed out, we look at percent positivity, um, especially among Uh, patients who are symptomatic, and we look at percent positivity of asymptomatic patients, and we look at doubling times, um, and we are very carefully looking at the number of patients across our whole system that we admit uh, to the hospital uh, for exactly the reason you point out, which is consideration of this second wave. Uh, And what we want to make sure is that we are able to Uh, detect a linear increase and don't allow it to become exponential and then work with the the state health department and work with local counties to be able to maybe tighten things up if it feels as though a specific county has an outbreak or an increase in cases. So we're hyper aware uh, of what the next step is and what the risks of the next phase are. Uh, But to be perfectly candid, we're having sort of a silent second wave of a healthcare crisis in Colorado, which is people being afraid to come to the hospital, afraid mm-hmm. to come to emergency departments, staying at home and suffering consequences of treatable diseases. So we have to be very careful about how we approach this. That's right. This has been called, I'm not sure if you coined this phrase on the show or not, but someone referred to this as slovid, uh, which is that emergency rooms are seeing a slowing of everyone else coming in. Very quickly, Jill Huntsuko Ryan, can you help me understand? The state is lifting restrictions on dentistry and on elective surgery. Is that true statewide or does that also depend on a county's decision? In other words, Denver is keeping its stay at home order in place. Can dentists in Denver or Boulder or Adams County open this week? Um, yes. So the elective surgery order is different from a from the safer at home order, okay. an additional order. And so it does apply statewide. I appreciate that clarity. Um, Dr. Zane, in a headline that kept me up over the weekend, I read that the World Health Organization says there's currently no evidence people who've recovered from COVID-19 and have antibodies are protected from a second infection. I think we were all just hoping if we ever got this, we wouldn't get it again. Do you expect to see patients who will come in twice? Uh, We do. And just like many other respiratory illnesses, there's not uh, lifetime immunity from having had the the infection. It's so frustrating. Oh, it's so depressing, isn't it? Well, we will get through this, I have no doubt. You know, what we need to do is what we've done for other infectious diseases, where we need um, adequate and accurate testing combined with a therapeutic, um, combined with either herd immunity or a vaccine. So that trio is how we're going to combat this. And science has never in the history of science gone as fast as it's gone now. And I have absolutely no doubt whether it's one month or six months or longer uh, that we will get our arms around this. Dr. Zane, I see why you have the job 
you have. I imagine it's that um, that framing in that sense that allows you to keep going back to a place that's probably a very difficult place to work right now. Um, I think that we are built for this, and this is why we exist, and this is why we do what we do. Uh, there hasn't been a single minute or day that it hasn't been reaffirming uh, to UC Health and to our providers of why we exist. This is what we do. This is why Colorado needs us. This is why we're here. Thanks to both of you for being with us. I appreciate so much your time. Dr. Richard Zane, Chair of Emergency Medicine at CU, and Jill Hunsaker-Ryan. She's Executive Director of the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment. Up next, tending to your mental health as things begin to reopen. As I heard one person put it, what is our emotional PPE? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Throughout the pandemic, we've checked in with mental health professionals. COVID-19 may affect the lungs and kidneys, but its threat affects our minds. As we enter yet another ambiguous chapter, Rick Ginsburg is back, president of the Colorado Psychological Association. Hi, Rick. Hi, Ryan. How's your mental health? Well, I am doing as well as can possibly be expected right now. I know everyone's struggling just a little bit, but um, uh, doing fine. Thank you. How are you? Well, it's interesting that you ask, how are you? It is my least favorite question to answer right now. And I know that people ask this very innocently, you know, how you're doing? And I, I could answer for three hours, of course, how I'm doing. I'm not going to do that. Uh, but I find myself vexed by that question. So I have come up with a shorthand. I am alive and healthy. And, and I guess that's uh, the most or the least we can hope for. Okay, it's, it's enough about me. It strikes me that Coloradans are increasingly going to face what may be difficult choices. Do I go to the hair salon? Do I return to the workplace, assuming the economics aren't forcing that decision? Um, what risks am I comfortable with and which ones go too far? How would you suggest negotiating all that? Well, we're in a situation right now where each and every one of us, it seems like as soon as we step out the door, are dealing with a couple of uh, fundamental issues. The first is our own anxiety and our own understanding of what the situation is. And the second is um, just the ethical dilemmas and the situations that we're faced with. I often talk to people right around this time about how often they felt like they were in a position where they needed to grapple with heavy ethical decision-making in their everyday life. And it really wasn't that frequent for many folks. And now it seems like every time you step out the door or even before that, you're making a lot of decisions that are ethically or morally based um, uh, that cause a lot of stress. And so what I am suggesting to people, and I think other mental health practitioners are as well, is to really get in touch with what your values are and uh, what you believe um, how you feel and how you think about really important issues, mm. safety, respect, um, confidence, um, dealing with anxiety, and to let that guide you um, in an informed way. It's a bit like taking a personal inventory. Would you suggest families have that conversation out loud and individuals, you know, who are self-isolating alone journal about it? Or I'm just trying to f- picture what that looks like. Mm-hmm. 
we, we don't often have these conversations around the dinner table and, and um, sometimes that's a good thing and sometimes that's not that good of a thing. <laughs> um, I think being able to speak to people you care about um, and, and who care about you is a wonderful way to unfold some of that thinking um, and certainly doing some self-reflection. Uh, you're going to be asking yourself some some hard questions and it might be very specific. For instance, do I feel like it is appropriate for me to walk outside or to be outside or take a walk or go anywhere without a mask on. And certainly there are uh, rules and regulations that have been brought down, but ultimately um, these are ethical decisions. Do I feel comfortable meeting with somebody and seeing somebody opening up a business, going to a business, um, um, and being face-to-face with somebody even at a safe distance? And um, these are questions that you really want to look into yourself for first and then try to flesh out with other people around you. I I so appreciate you contrasting the rules, which which do seem to change daily, Mm -hmm. with what can be constant, which is what is my North Star ethically. Um, that that doesn't have to move even though 10,000 things around it do. It does strike me that it, it could be particularly thorny if there is a difference of opinion within a family uh, or among roommates. That is, if one person is making a very conservative decision and one is making a very liberal, and I don't use those terms politically, one could be seen as jeopardizing the other's health. That's something to negotiate, isn't it? It sure is. And as Westerners often, we are not um, particularly uh, inclined or practiced in collectivism. And so there are other cultures that do a better job of that, just historically and traditionally. Thinking about the group as a whole, we tend to be um, individual pragmatic pioneers and, um, and rugged individualism is one of the bedrock principles, I think, of this country. And this region, for that matter. And this region in particular, and and thanks for mentioning that, it's very true. Um, But collectivism and and coming to some sort of consensus for the collective whole, we're less practiced in and and less used to. And this this doesn't mean that you have to agree with everybody around you. Um, But there is, I think, especially in families, a bit of a common denominator or lowest common denominator that groups of people really need to settle on. And mm. that's that's an ethical quandary and a discussion to have. And I should, should also mention, when we talk about ethics, we're not necessarily talking about anything religious or anything even moral. We're really talking about um, sort of fundamental philosophical principles, cognitive principles that help guide our decision-making, and, and those don't have to necessarily be linked with laws or or morals, per se, as we traditionally know them. I think what I appreciate about what you said there is a family, a group of people, is only as strong as the weakest link, as the riskiest behavior. So the conversation to have is, okay, what is the riskiest behavior this household is willing to accept? Uh, that strikes me as... Uh, a very targeted way that that this conversation can begin. We have just about a minute, um, Rick Ginsburg. 
I tweeted the other day that my fear is some of the self-isolating I'm engaged in is having a long-term effect on my socialization. Do you think that's true, or do you think these things rebound? Are they elastic? I think there is going to be a wave here uh, of mental health issues that we see, both an exacerbation of people's existing mental health issues as some of their social uh, behaviors as well. Uh, you, you had mentioned earlier in the program this idea of slow vid and the secondary and tertiary effects of this. I think we're going to see that um, in spades uh, as this goes, goes forward because it's stressful for everybody and um, and uh, creates creates that emotional difficulty that we don't might not necessarily know until later. Huh. So in the way that we think the economic effects of this will be long-term, we can think of the psychosocial effects being long-term as well. And th that's a question of the capacity of the mental health system. That's Rick Ginsburg, president of the Colorado Psychological Association. He's been checking in with us on mental health and COVID-19 throughout the pandemic. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters, and you're with CPR News.